You may have noticed in the heading above the song that we just sang that it's a song of ascents of David. And that would be because the pilgrims who are going up to Jerusalem, to the te- temple there for the various feast days, they'd be singing these psalms as they made their way up towards the city. So you'd have flocks of pilgrims coming together singing these songs. And it's uh, with that in mind that we're going to read about one of these festivals, the events that happened in one of these festivals in Israel. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, the verses 41 to 52. Luke chapter 2, the verses 41 to 52. And you'll be able to find that on page 1181 of your pew Bible. The Word of God. His parents, he's being Jesus' parents, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And today we'll be looking in particular at verse 49. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, do you have customs? Do you have family traditions? Do your family traditions reflect who you are and whose you are. We're not a people that place our hope in tradition. We recognize that tradition doesn't save us. If one family does something that's particularly pious and another doesn't, that doesn't say much at all about whether or not that family is more or less likely to be saved. But that doesn't mean that we can't use traditions to remind us of where we've come from and where we're going. In some families, the New Year's Eve tradition is for the whole family to get together right before midnight and to enter into the New Year reading from the Bible, particularly about the passing away of the old world and the coming of the new and praying to God. It's a reminder to them that this old world is temporary There are only pilgrims in it. That the fact 
that the old year is ending and the new year is beginning is only a small taste of an age that's coming to an end and this world being prepared for a new era, a new kingdom, and a new hope when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Today we see a tradition carried out by the parents of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the opening words of our passage, we read the words, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. It wasn't necessary for them to do this as a family exercise. We read in Exodus 23 verse 14 and following, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you've shown, sown into the field. And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruits of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all of your males shall appear before the Lord God. Only for these three feasts were the people expected to gather before the Lord. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, in which you'll find the one day that you'll celebrate the Passover. The Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Ingathering. And in these feasts, only the males who were of age were really required to be there. So for Joseph and Mary to come to Jerusalem in the temple every year for the feast of the Passover was a real mark of piety on their part. It was a custom meant to impress on them and their children, because it was quite likely with Jesus being 12 years old, that at least some of the brothers and sisters that are mentioned elsewhere would have been born by this point of time. It was a custom meant to impress on them and their children the importance of the Lord's deliverance of their people. And their God was a Savior, and they wanted their children to know it. This would have been especially important for Jesus himself at this stage. Why do I say that? Because personal observance of the commandments and attendance of the feasts in Jerusalem only took place for a young person when he legally came of age and became a son of the commandment popularly known today as his bar mitzvah. Bar meaning son and mitzvah referring to the commandments. As this was the case, parents made a point of bringing their children in anticipation of this one or two years prior to their actual bar mitzvah. He was legally going to become an adult male at the age of 13. And the command of the Lord was for such males to come three times a year. This was to make it a tradition for them so that they would want to continue out of love for it and out of love for the Lord even before it became an obligation for them to attend these feasts. In this way, the testimony of their faith would be engraved on their hearts. Are there patterns of faithfulness that you want to train your child up in? This is actually a good example of that. It takes to heart the words of Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. 
Today we'll see how this works out in our passage under the theme of Christ going about his father's business. And we'll see two points. First of all, his parents' misunderstanding, and second, the submission that followed. For Jesus' parents, it was a time when they could bring Jesus to the temple in preparation for his bar mitzvah. But for Jesus, this was so much more than just becoming a son of the commandment or a son of the law. Although his parents did not yet know it, this was his preparation for his ministry. Jesus was preparing to teach the world about God and to die for our sins. Jesus was seeking his Father and learning more about him to be equipped for his task. So Jesus at the temple was at a place where he was, that he was passionate about, and it consumed all of his attention. Unfortunately, it consumed so much of his attention that when his parents left, he remained at the temple. His parents hadn't checked up on him, and they had assumed that he had started back home with the rest of the crowd. It was a year before adulthood, and he was a responsible child. It would be okay, they'd probably figure. Have you ever done that, parents in the congregation? Figuring that your child is taken care of and accidentally leaving them behind in the church parking lot? Traveling with other pilgrims to the temple was a communal thing. You looked out for each other and you looked out for each other's kids. If your kids were gone for the day, hanging further back in line with family or with friends, it wasn't a big deal. But after the day comes to a close and Jesus doesn't reappear, his parents start to get worried. You can almost imagine how it goes, that pitting feeling in your gut when you realize that someone who's in your care isn't where, they, where you expected them to be, where they're supposed to be. They first look among relatives and acquaintances, but he doesn't show up. They go back to Jerusalem and start, start to search the city from top to bottom. One day, nothing. Two days, nothing. Mothers, can you imagine how frantic with worry Mary must have been about her little boy? Fathers, would you be angry with yourselves about not having kept a closer eye on your boy? On the third day, they decide to check the temple. And lo and behold, they find him there. He's sitting in the company of rabbis and teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, I won't speak at length about this, but I'll leave it in the words of one commentator. He writes, You may remember seeing the Hoffman picture of the boy Jesus in the temple, a boy in white expounding to all these wise old rabbis. That's not what Scripture says. Jesus was not some precocious quiz kid straightening out his elders. Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that he was listening and asking questions. He's pictured here for Mary as, as she comes in. He's pictured here as the eager student, learning in the pattern of his day. People would listen. They'd speak. They'd ask questions. That's how you learned. It was a more conversational style of teaching than our classrooms today. And Jesus here was being a model student because he cared. He loved the law of God and the word of God. 
He wanted to know more about who God was and what he had done for him. Odd, but also a little frustrated. Mary takes him aside and rebukes him, saying, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. You've caused us pain. You've caused us worry. How could you do this? What happens next is remarkable. Jesus says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Take a moment to stop and to look at these words, beloved. Do you notice the interesting contrast in the way he spoke? Mary says, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Jesus says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? If you could see the Greek, you'd notice that what is a little bit of an odd word order. Not completely so, but it's written in a way to put emphasis on your father. Luke's drawing attention to what's about to be contrasted here. Another commentator points out that not only do the words, why have you done this to us, reflect a a formula of accusation. This is something that you'll come across more often in the Old Testament when someone's accusing someone. But also that the accusation involved is always one of deception or betrayal. Jesus is accused of having betrayed his parents. That is, of having betrayed the calling that was his as the son of Joseph. That's a serious charge. Mary is charging him with specifically betraying his calling to obedience of his earthly father, Joseph. And so this brings a serious response from Jesus. He was engaged with the affairs of his heavenly father. He hadn't betrayed his calling to be obedient at all. Jesus being left behind was not being disobedient. He was just left behind. But having been left behind, they should have known where he would be. He's not first and foremost saying here, I have a higher calling that you need to recognize. Although that's definitely part of it. He's being prepared for a task that's much greater than they could possibly imagine. But what he's saying here is that they didn't need to run around frantically looking for him when they realized he was missing. As soon as they realized he was no longer there, they should have known. Parents, when you go to a busy fair or other event, do you give your kids a rally point for if they get separated from you? Perhaps you say, if you get lost, go to that tall structure over there and we'll get you. Then you know that if you do get separated, you don't need to really look for them. All you need to do is go there and they'll be there. Because being alone, they'll have, a fixed, they'll have a fixed idea in mind, a fixed destination in mind. Jesus is reminding them. He's saying, what's the point? What was the point of you bringing me here? It was to see the temple. It was to get to know God in a more special way by seeing the sacrifices and ceremonies carried out. So to see the relationship between humanity and between God. 
You've experienced a special event surrounding my birth. You know that I came to earth for a special purpose. Did you not know I would be here in the temple? Don't you remember that there's laid on me, worked into my DNA an inner necessity to be about my father's business? Their frantic searching for three days is starkly contrasted with his total preoccupation with his heavenly father's work. We can see here already, early on in Jesus' life, the fact that he recognizes that he has come to earth for a special reason. He recognizes that there is something that will be happening down the road. He is fully God and fully man. He's here for a purpose. That's the point that should be focused on here. How Jesus responds to his parents is often seen as a counter-accusation. But it is important to note that while, the, that while in the aftermath of the incident, the parents are left with much food for thought. You can see that in Mary pondering these things in her heart. It's Jesus whose behavior is changed. He goes back with his parents, after all, and is submissive with them. So Jesus' question here shouldn't be one of accusation. It should be one that's seen as reflecting genuine surprise. Jesus is genuinely surprised that his parents did not know. They've been teaching him and training him in the way that he should go. Everything about him pointed to the special nature of his existence. His whole life was geared around obedience to his heavenly father and will continue from this point on in his life to be geared in that way. But for this moment in time, he's going to focus on pleasing his parents. In his human nature, he's growing in wisdom and in favor with God and with men. And this is part of his growing experience. Now that he understands the concern that he caused his parents, he's going to submit to them in this too. This should be a comfort to us. As kids, we often struggle with submission to our parents, don't we? More than that, we all struggle with submission to our Heavenly Father. But we have here a Savior who has been perfectly submissive to His parents. Certainly, misunderstanding followed Him around His entire life long, but He stayed faithful in obedience to His calling. Kids, when you struggle with obedience and with submission to your parents, do repent and bring your sin to the Lord in prayer. But also be hopeful. As you come before the Lord in repentance, faith, and prayer, remember that you have a Savior who obeyed perfectly on your behalf, who even washed away your sinful disobedience with His blood, do you feel frustrated with your disobedience to God or your parents? Do you feel frustrated about the fact that this is something that keeps on rising in your heart? Keep submitting to Him and coming to Him in prayer. And He will, by His Spirit, slowly but surely transform you in His image if you earnestly seek Him in accordance with His will. At the end of our passage today, we find that Jesus then 
went down with them, with his parents, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? That Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. It really goes to show the human aspect of his nature. We don't always keep that in mind. We have this picture of Jesus as a fully grown human being. Just that part of his life. But no, he grew up. He listened to his parents. His parents told him what to do as well. And he went to school too. He grew in wisdom and in favor with God and with men. That meant, with regards to his human nature, his constant devotion to his Heavenly Father, it caused him to grow in favor with him. Now, some people read this portion of the passage and they argue that Jesus clearly did something wrong. They say, if what you read earlier didn't convince you, then what you read now affirms it. Jesus wasn't subject to his parents before, but he's subject to them now. They draw a contrast to them because the word subject is brought up. But is that really the point that's being driven home here? If we look at the word that's used, we get a bit of a clearer picture of what the author Luke is driving at here. The Greek word for that has the idea of being submissive to those who are in authority. It's the same word that's used in a military setting, that of a junior officer before a senior one. It's a recognition of who's in authority and a recognition of the need to abide by that. But more than that, the form of this word is meant to stress Jesus' continuing obedience to that. His continuing submission to his parents. Luke is stressing this just to make absolutely sure that no one mistakes what had just happened in Jerusalem as insubordination or disobedience. He's saying here as he's writing, Jesus is submitting to his parents just as he always has. But above all, we're meant to see that this submission to parental authority is ultimately a submission to God's authority. Because that's what children being obedient to their parents in what is right is. Kids, when you're following Christ's example, being submissive to your parents, you're serving God. You're being image bearers of Christ. Did you know that? What Christ did here flowed out of his trip to Jerusalem. He, his coming of age and his trip to Jerusalem impressed on him the importance of taking obedience to God's commands as human beings seriously. He loved his parents much and he loved his Father in heaven more. The trip to the temple would have made this vivid for him. One of the psalms that the pilgrims of Jerusalem would have sung as they went up to the house of the Lord was Psalm 131. And it's quite likely that Jesus would have sung this with the other pilgrims as well. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And like the other pilgrims, this would have affected his attitude in coming to the house of the Lord. 
The temple for him wasn't a place of rules. It wasn't a place of stress. For him, it was a place of comfort and joy. For him, it was a place when he was left behind that he could go to. Like a restless child who's been running around all day, now settles into the lap of his mother exhausted and finds it to be a place that's calming and quieting for his soul. So the worshipers, having run around in their day-to-day lives, would be able to calm and quiet themselves before the Lord. And so Jesus himself also calmed and quieted himself before the Lord, taking joy in the teaching that his heavenly Father brought to him. Now already at the age of 12, we find our Lord introducing us to a whole different conception of God. God is not some distant deity. He's not someone who's watching us without being particularly interested while sitting far away on a cloud. God is near. He is one who's invested. He is one who cares. He is the Father that Jesus could come to. The Father that Jesus could come near to when he was feeling concerned or worried or afraid or in pain. Of course, Christ is not the first one to call God our Father, but he is the first one to use the name of God in this way. In Malachi 3 verse 1, for example, we see the name of Father used to call Israel to repent from their sins. We read there, don't we all have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then are we not faithful? Why do we break the covenant? But even though Malachi does use the name Father, it was not usual to call God our Father in the Old Testament. They do not call Him our Father in the personal and special way that Jesus is calling Him my Father. The Old Testament calls him Father mostly in the sense of creator. He's the source and origin of everything. He is the Father of all creation. But Jesus adds to this. By calling God my Father, he's reminding the people that they can come to God, to be in a close relationship with God. And this God who created heaven and earth, the sun, moon, and stars, far, far away, and who is in control of every little thing, is the one who's looking out for him, the one who cares for him, the one who loves him, the one whom he can completely trust. When we see Jesus calling God my Father here in our verse, in our text, and later our Father as He teaches his followers. He's extending to us something that's free for the taking. This special relationship with a God who cares. Jesus is modeling for us here. And he's later later in his life obtains for us this sonship and this adoption. That was his task here on earth. His ministry introduces us to a whole new way of living. Not one that excludes our earthly parents, but one that embraces them. A relationship that goes much deeper there. When you're coming before God, you're coming before your Father. It was Jesus' life's work, even now, already beginning now, to make Him your Father. Do you take that into account 
This can be especially something that you can take into account with worship. Sure, the pastor you're listening to may be more difficult to follow. Sure, the people around you may not be more perfect. But it is your Father whose relationship with Christ, whose relationship Christ died to obtain for you, who is calling you into worship. Even through that pastor's sermons, if the gospel is being faithfully preached, God is extending his fatherly love to you. Are you in church to find the best speaker? Are you in church to find the perfect community? Or are you here to commune with the living God, to come to him to find comfort, to hear the words of love from your father? Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ obtained for us. This was the result of his obedience here on earth, beginning with his obedience to his parents and concluding with his being obedient to his heavenly father to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this is what's offered to you every Sunday again. Whichever church you might be from, your pastor's not perfect, not by a long shot. Your community isn't perfect. It's true. And yet, If they seek Jesus, there is the place to be. If they're looking for their father, when they gather, it should be an occasion for us to joyfully gather. In the words of Psalm 121, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Submit in faith to God and see the fruit that it brings. You'll see a father who cares. You'll grow to know more deeply an older brother who has bought this for you and who cares for you and who walks by your side through the Spirit throughout your life. Submission means that you are brought a new joy and enthusiasm because you take your eyes off of the outer forms of worship, off of the sinful, broken people who surround you, and once a week may direct them heavenward in a unique way to bring worship and praise to God. Just as Christ's obedience to God and his parents in our passage today sets the tone for his entire ministry, that he's not here on his own agenda, that he came to earth for the joy that was set before him of claiming a people that were his own, and that it was in harmony with the will of his Father, let Christ's obedience set the tone for your life today. In the freedom granted to you by his sacrifice, come to your heavenly Father in joy. Direct your heart heavenward in worship and offer your whole life as a living sacrifice to your God to bring praise and honor to him. Amen.